You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next up on Destination Freedom. And for me, it was a godsend because here here was talking about um, the history of radio, of black radio, you know, as we may call it now, but also blacks in radio. Um, and if you go back to the history of radio, radio, like television, like film, really is a, a microcosm or representative of what's happening in the culture uh, of a country or of a, um, an entity. So, um, you know, everything that's good and negative about the history of this country is reflected in its media. And the fact that, you know, there was discrimination, legal discrimination, segregation, um, is also reflected on, on the air. Welcome to Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast, a copyrighted program of No Credits Production, LLC. I'm producer-director Danielle Betts. I speak with Professor Sonia D. Williams. She is a professor at Howard University Department of Media, Journalism, and Film. Professor Williams has written and produced numerous features and documentaries for National Public Radio, Public Radio International, the Smithsonian Institute, and local radio station nationwide. She's won awards, including the prestigious George Foster Peabody Awards for a significant achievement for Smithsonian's production and Public Radio International, Black Radio, Telling Like the World, NPR's Making the Music, NPR's and Radio Smithsonian Wade in the Water, African-American Sacred Music Traditions. I speak with her about her book, Word Warrior, The Life of Richard Doom, creator of the original Destination Freedom. Next on Destination Freedom, Professor Sonia D. Williams. And now, Destination Freedom. Thank you so much for joining Destination Freedom Black Radio Day's podcast. Thank you, Danny. Really appreciate it. So how are you really doing? You know, that's that's the thing we need to ask each other today. How are you doing? Oh, um, as good as can be expected, and I guess as as everyone is is dealing with all of the changes over the last year, year and a half, um, with the pandemic and then everything that's been going on politically and socially, it's it's been rough. But you know, we we have to keep smiling and keep moving and <laughs> and you know just try to 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 stay as positive as possible. Yes, and what helps is you have an infectious laugh, so that always helps. You know. <laughs> Put everybody <laughs> well, at ease. 
<laughs> Thanks. Let's talk, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your background. Um, by growing up, uh, what led you to this form, to journalism and to radio? Well, you know, I think if I could look back at my teenage self or even preteens, I know that I wouldn't um, have uh, said that I'd be at this point in my life or what I've done even, you know, a little bit earlier. Because um, I think the blessing was that I have had the parents who I have. Um, My brother and I um, probably hit a mini jackpot in that um, both of our parents were were really supportive and continue to be today. They just celebrated, by the way, their 70th wedding anniversary (laughs) last month. So, yeah, and we had, uh, you know, a big celebration on Zoom, of course. Okay, right. (laughs) Um, But, but yeah, so um, our parents really were supportive of whatever we, um, what skills or interests we we um, displayed, but I think that growing up in New York City um, and and having access to all that the city um, offered on the cultural and social and artistic uh, you know perspective was really wonderful because my mother in particular made sure that we were exposed to everything, whether it's you know going to the Bronx Zoo or um, going to the botanical gardens, which we saw as a waste, kind of like, why are we walking around a bunch of flowers and trees? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, it also now, uh, now that I look back at it, it was like, oh, no wonder I love being in nature. Yes, <laughs> One of the right. reasons why I love being in nature. Um, and then on the cultural end, I mean, if there was anything on uh, in dance or in drama or in uh, in the movies or, you know, museums, we were there. And our, our our mother and her sister and her best friend, we were like a little tribe of of the parents and the kids. And, um, and you know, we, we just kind of went everywhere. I'll never forget that almost every summer uh, we were part of the Shakespeare in the Park, um, you know, folk who went to see the performances of Shakespeare plays that were free, um, but you had to, it was an all-day event because because it wasn't a paid event and it was free to anybody who who wanted to go, you had to show up earlier in the day to get tickets. So we made, or my mother and and her uh, friends made a an all-day picnic of it where we would go and hang out in the park and, you know, take our blankets and run around and, you know, be kids and then stand in line to get the tickets and then that evening, um, you know, watch the play. And many of us, I'm sure, fell asleep (laughs) once once the play started. But, I mean, it was an event, and to this day I remember that whole day and then watching – um, you know, this, these plays come to life, many of which we probably didn't get because of the language. But, you know, over time, as it went on and we were exposed to more plays, it became, you know, it, it started to make more sense. So, um, so that's kind of the environment that I grew up in. And I also knew that from early, I can't tell you what, what age I was, but I was definitely drawn to music. Mm. And for some reason, I thought I wanted to play 
the at first I, I guess I wanted to play the guitar for whatever reason, <laughs> and then I got attracted to the the clarinet, and I wanted to play clarinet. So by the time I got to uh, junior high school, um, there was a, a really dynamic music program in in my school. Um, it, what, it was what Herman Ritter. In, sorry, excuse me? what borough was this? Were you in the Bronx? This is in the Bronx. Okay. Yes. All right. So, um, so what ended up happening was uh, I got involved with the uh, the music program, the band, and, and <laughs> to this day, um, the reason why I play the instrument that I play, which was which is the oboe, um, the band leader said, "Hey, you know, we we have enough clarinet players, and we're all out of clarinets, but there's this instrument that's like a clarinet." called the oboe. And I'm like, what the heck is an oboe? <laughs> he said, well, it's a woodwind instrument. It's a double reed and blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay, well, I'll do that for a minute until you have more clarinets available, right. and then I want to switch over to clarinet. That never happened. <laughs> but that's what got me into um, music and art high school, uh, because I ended up taking private lessons and going to um, Manhattan College of Music or School of Music uh, as a preparatory student and then dealing with theory and ear training. And and I, you know, I joined orchestras and played in bands. It was, you know, music is my first love. So that's that's what kind of in a, in a long kind of form way got me into radio because I also listen to radio on a regular basis in the house, you know, with friends, you know, obviously that's how we're exposed to all of the popular um, songs of the day. Right. And so, you know, in a roundabout way, music led me to radio, radio um, also became a passion and there you have it. Well, beautiful. Well, in that case, um, very similar backgrounds with myself as well. The radio music on the radio led me into doing what I do now too. Same. So, uh, wow. I can understand that passion and I didn't realize that you were so heavily into music. So thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, people, I think sometimes have, I listen to other interviews with you and, and never even chance, have a chance to touch on more of your background. So I, I thank you so much for sharing that with us. So we need to. Oh that. yeah, no, no problem. In fact, you know, one, one of the things that when I started in college, I was a music major. And um, while I didn't necessarily see myself as going into music performance, um, I, I was a composition and theory major because mm. I wanted to write music okay. um, and all. And so I did that. But <laughs> the other thing that happened my freshman year in college was I got involved with the campus radio station. And, you know, and that was kind of it. It was like, yes. wow. You can make a living <laughs> <laughs> doing this, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, That's so fantastic. There you have it. I love it. I love it. Well, let's talk about something that I uh, really uh, shaped part of my life too. Is uh, your series uh, along with um, uh, others, uh, Black Radio, telling like it was really delving mm -hmm. into the early days of radio and, and the DJs and the drama series and so on and so forth. Tell us about your involvement with that, the Smithsonian production of Black and Black Radio International, Black Radio, tell it like it was. Yeah, that was, um, this year is the 25th anniversary of the airing of that series. It actually um, aired uh, nationwide on public stations uh, in 1996. 
Um, but it, it really came out of the brainchild of uh, Jackie Gales Webb, who um, was a producer uh, at the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian back in the 80s and 90s had a unit, and this was part of the National Museum of American History. So there was a unit in that museum um, that dealt with documenting American history through television and radio documentaries. Um, and so uh, Jackie w- worked full-time uh, at the uh, Smithsonian in this unit. And one of the things that she decided and started fundraising for was to do a historical series um, on the history of blacks in radio mm-hmm. um, from the earliest days, from the 20s, 1920s, up until the early 90s. And so she was able to you know, get the funding together, and then she hired myself and another producer to work on this 13-part, 13-half-hour series of programs on the history. So that's really how that came about. It was it was her brainchild, and, and, and for me, it was a godsend, because here, here was talking about um, the history of radio, of black radio, you know, as we may call it now, but also blacks in radio. Um, and if you go back to the history of radio, radio, like television, like film, really is a, a microcosm or representative of what's happening in the culture uh, of a country or of a, um, an entity. So, um, you know, everything that's good and negative about the history of this country is reflected in its media. And the fact that, you know, there was discrimination, legal discrimination, segregation, um, is also reflected on, on the air. Um, uh, the fact that there were innovations in the medium, um, from both a technological as well as a programming side, you get that in radio as well. And you get that in terms of our interaction with the medium. Um, so, so when, uh, Jackie was clear that she had the funding to go forth with this in 1994, yeah, it, it was in 1994 that we actually, in earnest, started the research and the process of trying to track down as many of the um, then-alive um, pioneers in black radio as possible, finding archival tape um, that existed both at the Smithsonian and in archives around the country. Um, we we even went and found uh, folks who... Um, had their own, you know, taped some of their mm-hmm. favorite DJs or, or programs yes. um, on their own and, you know, went to private owners to see if we could, you know, use some of their tapes. Um, it was just, it was like a year and a half or two years of intense but absolutely rewarding uh, research and production to come up with these half hours. So you, 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 if you listen to the show now and, or the series, the, the entire, um, 13 part series, it's, it sounds like, wow, they got all this information together and it's a smooth half an hour, um, <laughs> program, but we're talking about months, if not years yes, <laughs> yes. of effort that went into it. And it was, it was really wonderful. Well, as a documentarian, that's what I really appreciate about it. Appreciated about it. I mean, many, many years ago, I had an opportunity to meet Jackie at a convention, I think, uh, for black programming, um, 
And um, I, I mentioned that to her. She won't remember me or whatever, but I was like, I was it's one of the <laughs> series that, uh, you know, um, really shaped what I wanted to do and, and, and what I wanted to follow my career because it gave me so much information and background. You know, you could read a few things. And you know about the radio was more about menstrual shows and negative connotations for right. blacks that were part of it, you know, from Amos and Anley and Beulah and all that kind of stuff. So um, I wanted to know what else was out there. And then when I found uh, what you and I both know and love is the Richard Doom's Destination Freedom, uh, that made it even more valuable. But then you look at all the different DJs like you. I started on campus radio as well, too, in Fresno, California. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, when, you know, I listen like, oh, yeah, all these DJs, they had, such, they had golden voices, first and foremost. And then they really knew their audiences and they built those audiences up. And they had a huge following because it radio was the medium. So once again, I just applaud uh, everyone that was involved with that project for having that now as some as a resource for Moni and myself uh, who's into the research and that sort of stuff but even young people who want to know more about what the medium was and how it evolved into what it is today so right and and you know the the great thing is that because this year is the 25th anniversary of uh, of the show of the series airing um we one of the things that happened with um, some of the documentary projects that I worked on, say in the '90s and the early 2000s, um, was the internet as we know it now didn't exist. Right, right. <laughs> Not as we know it, you know, today. So the fact that it was we we designed this to be broadcast and we had gotten the broadcast rights for this, but we never we weren't able to get secure the um, the sale rights. So the series was never available for sale because that would have been a whole nother uh, fundraising and legal um, um, experience that that we just didn't have the the money or the resources to deal with at the time. Yeah. But now, twenty five years later, um, you know, for the most part, if you're not if you're a researcher and you're looking to find out information about early radio or radio from the 70s or the 80s or or even earlier, the 50s and the 40s. Um, in terms of what we collected, I used to know the exact um, number of hours, but, you know, we're, we're talking about probably 300 or so hours of tape mm, wow. um, that, you know, included both original interviews that we did with with owners of stations, with um, managers, with programmers, with DJs, with artists, and then um, archival tape from actual uh, radio shows, and then anything else that we could gather from stations um, that is now sitting at the uh, Indiana University's um, Archive of African American Music and Culture. Mm-hmm. So unless you're a researcher and you can get access to that, the the, the programs that, that came out of all of those hours of um, tape and in, information were just sitting on a shelf. Okay. Um, okay. And so one of the things that I knew that, you know, maybe this would be a good uh, entree to to get it back out into the world for folks who who didn't hear the series back then or heard about it and never heard it, this would be a way. So thank goodness PRX um, 
which took over from um, Public Radio and National PRI, um, said, hey, yeah, we we think we can do this. And so they've made it available to stations nationwide, and it's available on the PRX site. So, you know, now after 25 years, you can hear um, most of the series, and, and that's really rewarding. Speaking with Professor Sonia D. Williams, a professor at Howard University, Department of Media and Journalism, and also the fantastic author of Word Warrior, a documentary uh, look at the writer and producer of Destination Freedom, Richard Dorm. Let's talk about this book now. It's a 2016 Phyllis Wheatley Book Award winner and finalist, and it documents the life of a gifted broadcast dramas and journalism and activist, Richard Dorm. Tell me about um, Word Warrior and why Richard Doom is so important, not only to audio drama, but to activism. I have to credit um, Black Radio, telling it like it was, uh, for introducing me to Richard Durham because one of the shows that I was responsible for writing and producing looked at um, Black involvement in radio in the 30s, the 1930s, and the 1940s. And while, again, segregation and discrimination limited the number of um, of black voices you heard uh, on the air at the time, and, of course, many of those voices, if they were on the air, if they weren't musicians and they were in a, a dramatic production, you know, we're talking about stereotypes. And Amos and Andy, which were actually two white guys, yes, yes. <laughs> um, portraying black characters. Um, but then by the time you finally do get some black characters, Rochester in the Jack Benny show, mm-hmm. or Beulah on the Beulah show, even Beulah, when it first came on the air, was voiced by a white male actor. Right. Um, and then finally, um, Hattie McDaniel became uh, the voice of, of Beulah. But, but, but the bottom line was that in looking at what, what was the range of, of programming that existed in the 40s, and the 30s, the late 30s, and into the 40s. And, of course, Richard Durham's name came up. One of my colleagues at Howard had done some research uh, on dramas, radio dramas, it, during that period, uh, the so-called golden age of radio. And he and another colleague of mine at Howard said, well, if you're going to look at that period, you have to look at this show called Destination Freedom, and you have to also talk about the gentleman who created and wrote every single episode in that series, and that was Richard Durham. So that's how I was introduced to him. I started doing the research about him, and when I first heard the series, oh, wow, I was like, <laughs> holy moly, this this was on radio in the 1940s, the late 1940s, yes. and it was on on a regular basis in Chicago. WMAQ. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really dynamic, really professional, high production value. Just, just 
stellar. And um, and the fact that it's not, it wasn't, and maybe even today is not as widely known as it should be is, you know, is a travesty. But so when I when I realized that, it was like, okay, so I'll do a segment for the Black Radio series uh, on Destination Freedom and Durham and his contributions. But then the more research I did into Durham himself, it was like, okay, so he worked in radio. He was a radio dramatist. He was a writer. But he, before he had gotten into radio, he was a poet. He wrote for the Chicago Defender as a journalist and a feature writer. Um, he, after Destination Freedom, he got into labor organizing. He wrote Muhammad Ali's autobiography in the 70s. He was a speechwriter for Harold Washington, who became the mayor of the first black mayor of the city of Chicago. And I'm like, poor this guy. <laughs> How did he do all of this? I know it. I know and, it. And, <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Totally amazing. At, at the time that he did it, too. And, you know, I was right. lucky enough to be able to, as you were, uh, speak with people like Studs Tergo and Oscar Brown Jr. to really do knew him right. well, uh, to talk about him. And Oscar always talked about his label organizing skills. And he said right. it was the first time he ever heard of a caucus was through Richard Durham. You know, right. and I love to quote when he, he says when he would talk to Richie, he said every time he would leave him, he would come back with some fat between his ears because there was so much information <laughs> that, he, that he had to share. So when I read your book on him that went more into detail, I was just uh, fascinated. It's called Word Warrior. It's about the life of Richard Durham. And you talked a little bit of just about some of his accomplishments. Um, what what else can you say about uh, Richard Durham? Uh, that and, and the reason why I started doing uh, Destination Freedom was just because of that, because it was not well known, and you know I just wanted more people to know about it, and uh, more people to know about Richard Durham. But continue on. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, no. You, I, I think that you are be to be highly commended for, um, you know, being inspired, not just being inspired by Durham, but also bringing his. Um, influence into you know to the to today and to people who may not have ever heard of the 1948 1949 1950 series um the the thing about durham was that he based on his own background and again it it often goes back to your family influences and then education and he was i think if he had one regret, it's that he he never really finished his degree. He went to Northwestern for a while, but it was during the Depression, and um, he didn't have the resources um, to enable him to continue on through his degree. But he went on and educated himself anyway, and, and it, for him, it was all about um, looking at the world, the world as it existed, what the inequality, um, the inequalities in the world, and how to to deal with amplifying those, not amplifying the inequalities, but amplifying the 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 positive aspects of a people and a culture to inspire folks to, you know, really push for social justice and change, positive social change. And I think that whether he was writing poetry, whether he was writing a newspaper article or a feature article, whether he was writing a speech for someone else, 
or, um, you know, following Muhammad Ali around the world, literally, <laughs> so that he could um, write the autobiography that, you know, Muhammad Ali at the time um, really, you know, wanted, or, or at least the people around him really pushed to have. Right. So I think that you're, you're talking about a man who was principled, who was dedicated to social change, positive social change and justice. And he used all forms of the media and drama <laughs> to get that point across and was inspiring in that, whether you're talking about a Studs Terkel or Oscar Brown Jr. or the other folks who he came in touch with, Harold Washington, right. um, and, and, and the many, many, many other people who... Um, were touched by him, whether they, you know, were physically or personally touched by him or touched by his work, um, that he was an inspirational um, person who I thought, once I uh, started doing the research about his life, should be better known. And he came from, he was part, his family was part of the Great Migration. So his family moved to Chicago from Mississippi, but they were, his father was a landowner. And in Mississippi, if you're talking about the early 1900s, that is not a usual thing. Right. <laughs> so, right. yes. um, so, yeah. And so, you know, but his mother and his father, his, his father had attended Alcorn um, State University in, in Mississippi, and his mother um, really was an education advocate. She, for all of her children, and they had eight children, seven of whom uh, survived into adulthood. She was a teacher. She went back to school when she was in her 60s <laughs> to get her mm. high school education, um, and she was valedictorian of her class. Um, she, I think she and their... Uh, and and her husband, you know, the, the, her their children's father, um, really instilled the whole idea that education is also freedom, yes, right. <laughs> and and is necessary in order for there to be progress, um, you know, for their children, for the world in, in general, and so I think that's what helped to shape this man who would then go on to uh, write and create and inspire. So we are speaking with Professor Sonia D. Williams of Howard University, and we're speaking about her book, War Warrior. Can you tell us what the book is available now? Yes, it is available um, both on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Nobles. It's, it's, it's actually available almost on any um, commercial commercially viable um, book um, resource. Okay. Um, I, and it's also, it's, so that's the, the paperback. Right. But, um, but a couple of years ago, literally now in 20, was it 2018? I, I was trying to, for what have, would have been Durham's 100th birthday, he was born in 1917. So I was pushing to try to get an audiobook version of it for his 100th birthday. I didn't quite make the um the twenty seventeen mark, but in twenty eighteen um we were able to get out an audiobook version of the book, A Word Warrior. So that's available uh as well. And um it is on Downpour, uh which is another service. Um just like say Audible, but it's right. it's called Downpour. Beautiful. Thank you so much. 
Professor Williams, it's been an honor to speak with you. It's been a it's long been time wonderful. coming, <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. but we, we finally get there again. Uh, we're speaking with Sonia D. Williams, professor at Howard University, but also the author of Word Warrior, The Life of Richard Durham, a 2016 Phyllis Wheatley Book Award a nominee and someone who's inspired my life. Uh, you both have. Thank you so much for giving me. Uh, oh, no, little, thank you. you know, you, Thank your you, time, Danny. I really appreciate it. Also, gave me a little line in the book itself. So I was so honored. Oh my God! I said, "Oh, I mentioned in the book." <laughs> <laughs> that concludes this episode of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Our producer director, Danielle Betts. The 2020 season will examine the issues facing communities of color, exploring police shootings, immigration, health disparities, and gender bias. Support for Destination Freedom is provided by the Bonfi Stanford Foundation, the Ulipians Fund of the Denver Foundation, Arts and Society, and Karen and Johnny Klein. Destination Freedom Black Radio Days is produced by Danielle Betts. The series is remixed by Maurice Smith, a.k.a. Reese. Make sure you check us out at NoCredits.com and pick up our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes, Radio Public, Spotify, etc. Follow us at Twitter at Donnie Betts. Hashtag No Credits Production LLC. Hashtag Black Radio Days. Hashtag Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.